This podcast is a collaboration between Aftonbladet Kultur and the Institute for Future Studies, an interdisciplinary research institute that focuses on the possibilities and threats humanity has to handle, now and in the future. Knowledge and critical reflection make for better decisions. Follow our research at iffs.se. to a new episode of the podcast The New World. My name is Karin Pettersson. I'm the culture editor of Aftonbladet. I'm Georg Dietz, the editor-in-chief of the New Institute. And this time we talk to the political theorist Katrina Forrester, uh, who wrote the lauded, hailed book In the Shadow of Justice, a critique of roles and the history of idea of uh, roles. Someone we really wanted to have. Yeah, for, for a, a long, long time. Long time. For a yeah. long, long time. And we had a far-ranging conversation on roles in today's uh, political discussion, but also and maybe mainly about the post-pandemic world, or was it not? And of course, uh, challenging social democracy as always. Um, as where, always, um, roles is a way. Um, yeah, so the. The, the North Star of social democracy, but also embodying the contradictions, I think, in a lot of ways, um, justifying a system that turned out to be not about uh, <laughs> justice <laughs> in the end, which is the okay, job description okay. of social democracy. Okay, um, okay, okay. Well, I, I think so. <laughs> Katrina was more on my side, but I don't know if that's uh, well. I think that's how you up feel. To the, yeah, no, I don't know if you described the conversation. <laughs> Exactly right. But anyway, we had we talked about roles. We talked about we fought a bit gender. We fought a bit. We talked about gender in the post-pandemic world, which I found super interesting. What has changed during the pandemic and how we see um, how we as a society value care work, for example, and, and how will that play out um, during the years to come, coming out of this uh, time, Corona times. So I found that found that interesting. We can ju- uh, just jump right in. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to, to hear again who, who won. So Katrina Forrester, good to have you in the new world. Thank you both for having me. And we um, talk about the new world in the spectrum of the old world as sometimes social democracy kind of drags into this discussion. Um, and in some way, I think it's interesting to start at least the conversation with thinking about somebody who might be a figure that social democracy is sort of, sort of um, showing the contradictions of at least this European model of social democracy, John Rawls, who wrote uh, this really fantastic um, book about and the shadows of justice and maybe you can unpack the contradictions of Rawls before we dig deeper into the contradictions of capitalism which Rawls interestingly is maybe not so interested in or maybe he is maybe you can explore that a bit 
Yeah, uh, thank you. Um, so I should say to start off with that uh, I wrote a book about Rawls less because I was interested in Rawls's theory and more because in general I'm interested in re the relationship between political theory, theory and practice and what kinds of lenses and frameworks and diagnoses we use to make sense of contemporary politics. And I came to Rawls because Rawls's theory was in many respects the dominant theory for doing so within political philosophy and within liberal political philosophy in particular. Um, so to say something about Rawls, I suppose I would um, begin by saying that he really in many ways was the most influential Anglophone political philosopher of the late 20th century. So his famous book, A Theory of Justice, published in 1971, really set the terms for political philosophy for a generation. And that book, well, I mean, we can we can talk a little bit about what kind of justification for social democracy it was, but it was certainly received as a kind of justification and defense of a version of social democracy. And in that book, he put forward a vision of a society in which social institutions were regulated by two principles of justice, his principles of liberty and equality. And his vision and his account of that society would lead to the birth of the philosophy known as liberal egalitarianism, which really came to dominance in the 70s, just as in many respects, the social democracy that Rawls had been writing about was um, really under pressure. And so I was very interested in the ways in which that theory came to be a kind of consolation for liberal philosophers at that moment, um, as it, the, the, the ideas that had been baked into Rawls's theory were really coming under pressure and the models that had been baked into Rawls's theory were coming under pressure. And really in the 70s, 80s and beyond, uh, liberal egalitarianism, which was a way for philosophers to talk about equality, inequality, um, what kinds of distributions of goods and what kinds of social relations were just and fair and equal, those discussions end up going on at quite a distance from uh, the, 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 re, the transformation and the resettlement of social democracy that takes place in those years. And so I was interested really in that gap between theory and practice about um, and what we can say about liberalism and the different ideologies of liberalism through taking Rawls seriously as not just a philosophy, a set of justifications for the welfare state, but a particular language of liberalism and a language of liberal ideology. And how, how would you explain, I mean, that's my critique in certain parts of social democracy, so that um, equality got lost along the way. I mean, it certainly sounds like a sort of third way kind of story, intellectual history, prehistory of I read it as a prehistory of not only of third wave social democracy's failures, but also of um, neoliberal neoliberal sort of takeover. It's in, in the context of Quinslow Bodian's work and sort of just trying to understand, or even Sam Moyne's work, trying to understand what are the reasons why we're here. Actually, what is the prehistory of now in some way, and and um, sort of and inequality, um, which we might talk about a bit, but maybe not too much, um, is. Um, yeah, something that is not really connected to liberty anymore in some uh, meaningful way, I would, I, would, I would say. Yeah, so I think to answer that in some sense, you know, I think uh, 
to maybe to go back to your first question, actually, about the kind of contradictions of liberalism and Rawlsian liberalism and how it relates to the story about the rise of neoliberalism of human rights that Slobodian and Moyne have told. I think that um, one of the things I tried to show in my book was that Rawls, it's too simple to think of Rawls as a kind of welfare state liberal. And then you get this slide into neoliberalism and he's very detached from that, in part because of the contradictions of post-war liberalism itself that Rawls was drawing on. Now Rawls's book is published in 1971, but he's actually writing for three decades, two decades before that. And in many respects, his theory bears the mark of the contradictions of post-war, which we can think of as social democracy, but really there are many different strands going through it, including some of the strands that become a kind of neoliberalism. So Rawls himself was very skeptical at various points, especially in his early writings of the coercive power of unions, of the administrative state and its overreach. And he was very worried about those forms of power. And he really wanted to um, think about uh, politics, not um, in terms of those kinds of social forces. Um, and I think that, that those kinds of ideas, that kind of skepticism, the liberal skepticism, um, which is concerned with liberty, I think, uh, as you say, gets uh, kind of smushed together in many respects with the egalitarian social justice concerns with redistribution. So really what you see in rules in some sense is this crystallization of the contradictions of post-war liberalism, some of which led into um, the, the, the settlement that we now think of as neoliberalism, the settlement where human rights are um, put above social rights and economic rights in various different ways. But I think these are all in some sense baked into um, the structure of Rawls's theory and then into uh, the philosophy and the political philosophy that comes from it. And, uh, you know, to go back to your question about liberty versus equality, I think, you know, to be fair to, to the Rawlsians and the liberal egalitarians, they were really concerned much more with equality than with liberty. And I think, you know, in, certain sen in, in, in a certain sense, actually with the re-emergence of discourses about inequality over the last 10 years, Rawlsian egalitarianism looks much more um, pertinent and useful than it did in the 70s and 80s. My questioning of it is kind of less to do with the usefulness of discourses of um, its discourse of equality and inequality um, and more with the discourse of inequality and equality in general. Um, so um, can I ask, Luke, um, just following up on what you just said, because I do think when I, th when I think about roles today and, and going back to when his book came out, it seems in a way you could argue that the, the idea is much more radical today because of the, uh, what has happened since with the explosion of inequality and, um, uh, well, basically hyper-capitalism being much more aggressive in, uh, in, um, in being like a, a force, a colonial force in every part of, of society and, and our more, more intimate spheres and, and surveillance capitalism and, and what have you. So in a way, I think also when talking to, to liberals today, I mean, coming from a, a kind of a leftist social democrat uh, standpoint myself, but talking to liberals today uh, in the liberal, in the Rawlsian liberal tradition, I mean, to, to even suggest and to argue for a Rawlsian idea, even though it's lacking maybe this 
component of, I don't know, class struggle or conflict um, that it is lacking. It seems anyway, anyhow, very, very uh, radical and utopian and visionary in a sense, just, I mean, compared to what the world actually looks like. So in a way, do you think it could be useful as a, um, um, or is it just, I don't know, could it be a useful tool today or do you think it's just too weak in its uh, theory of change or theory of conflict? Which is per se a question to social democ democracy. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Couldn't right. it be I nice? Mean, so I think that the theory of change and conflict is the really important bit here. So, you know, in some sense, I, it, there's been a move over the last few years to really reclaim roles as a kind of socialist and really up the liberal socialist aspects of his theory. And I think that speaks to exactly what you're saying um, about the apparent radicalism of the theory and, this, and, and the ways in which I think it can be used in tandem with some other critiques of capitalism today, whether it's a critique of rentier capitalism, a critique of asset appreciation capitalism, maybe we can come on to talk about some of those mm. different critiques. But I think that a Rawlsian framework does sit very, um, it can be made compatible and complementary as a way of generating policy insights for and justifications for wealth taxes, for example. Um, and so in that sense, yes, I think it, it, certainly I can see there's a great deal of value in the ways in which egalitarian, the, the, the literature and the, um, the depths of which uh, egalitarian, um, the debates that egalitarians gave us and the literature they gave us. Where I would say is that um, the, the, the difficulty comes is really with the lack of a theory of change and the starting places for a society really which assumes a great deal of consensus. Now, of course, Rawls and Rawlsians take very seriously disagreement and the fact of disagreement and they think that all um, arguments have to be justified. But nonetheless, there's a kind of deep understanding of society, not necessarily as a class divided society um, and although Rawls thinks about class, he doesn't necessarily think about class in, I think, um, the way we might want to think about it today. Um, and I think that partly because of the fact that Rawls' theory was built in this, in the age of social democracy, um, it has a very incrementalist understanding of reform. Mm. And I think in that sense, um, it, it isn't a critical theory. So there is no critical, um, even though there, there's a way of, uh, it, it gives a lot of uh, grounds for judgment and for imagining um, the justification of reform, it doesn't give the kind of critique that I think we would want um, to have today. I think that's a super interesting point. Um, connecting something that Astro Taylor said when we had her on a podcast the other day, sort of about consensus versus conflict in our democratic understanding and, and how post-war democracy is built on this Habermasian or Rawlsian mm -hmm. concept of consensus. Um, um, and she said also in the context of Occupy Wall Street that that sort of radical consensual democracy that, that she was, Rousseauian concept of democracy that she was skeptical of. But maybe you can explore that sort of being, as you said, on in the intersection between political theory also, but institution sort of, sort of thinking about political institutions or governance. Is, is, there, is there a problem in, in, in the way that we perceive democracy, so sort of that we build democracy, that we don't have 
Uh, no, is there a problem <laughs> with democracy? Uh, uh, no, but in this, in this, in this constructive way of, of um, using conflicts of, um, that, that we don't have, we're so afraid these days. Though, so the, the, the talk about democracy or conflict has been sort of, been, sort of, sort of shrunk to the, to the, oh, we are so, so polarized, which is um, like a dead end of, of discourse. So if, no, we don't have enough open conflict, you could also say. We don't have, talk about class or struggle enough and that that can also be just just, just the motto of this conversation this can also be blamed on social democracy of course <laughs> yeah, so they're like of course. No, I, i'm not, not blaming everything on social democracy but so do we have enough should should we rethink democracy to be more and that's something that roberto Unger, for example always sort of said so if you have a high energy sort of level of democracy you need to have more conflict you need to have more argument and and and, and sort of dialectical approaches to 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 most everything But what do you mean? Question. I mean, what do you mean with <laughs> what do you mean with conflict? Do you mean uh, you mean from from activism or from trade union? No, class struggle. I, I, yeah, class so struggle. You mean? Uh, yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, so I would say that you know I wouldn't necessarily want to go down a kind of conflict for conflict's sake agonism as a kind of necessary feature of democracy, though I see some value in that. Um, I think that one of the things that um, sometimes gets lost when we think about democracies. We think about democracy, uh, uh, radical critiques of representative democracy often get framed in terms of participation. So we want kind of labor unions because they're ways uh, to encourage participation and vehicles for equality. I think that we should start with thinking about the kinds of, uh, let's say, may maybe starting with a kind of more functionalist and less idealist vision. Um, of the ways in which conflict works in society and the ways in which people and groups and classes are invested in existing social orders um, and then move to kind of thinking about democracy. And I suppose one of my kind of reasons for going to the Rawlsian tradition was sparked by, um, you know, Raymond Goyce has his famous critique of Rawlsian liberalism and Habermas, for that matter, as, um, you know, in Marxist and critical theoretic terms, um, as unrealistic. And, uh, you know, in many respects, that is where I came from and started from. And I wanted to look at that tradition historically rather than um, only as an object for critical theory. But I do think that the, the lessons um, from the limits of Egalitar liberal egalitarianism, i.e. the starting from a kind of idealized vision of either what society should be like, but also even how conflict works. Mm. I think we can idealize how conflict should work. And I think you see that in some of the agonistic um, democratic traditions of thinking. Um, actually, I think we should be thinking, um, looking right now to some of the ways in which configurations are developing and so on and then moving from there so i would just flip it and not say that you know there i, I to go back to your question about what's wrong with democracy <laughs> our democracy i mean it, it's huge but i'm not sure that the the solution can be um diagnosed in terms of more participation or better kind of democratic structures i think we need to think about um the things and the developments that make those so hard to achieve And what are those? <laughs> okay. Well, okay. So you know, we you're a materialist, Karen. So you yeah, know. yeah. No, I know, but <laughs> no, Wait, but, you know what? <laughs> no, 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 no. But um, so I guess here we come to uh, to critiques of capitalism or how to think about capitalism today and uh, how it's structured and what the obstacles are to 
uh, for democracy or for participation? And no, I'm just, uh, how would you, what would you say today? I mean, also compared to to the early 70s when, when Rawls published his book, what's the difference, what has happened in between and where, how bad is the situation? <laughs> well, um, so maybe I could uh, get at the very large answer to that question by yeah. thinking about some of the most useful uh, theories, I think, for thinking about today. And I already mentioned one of it, which is the kind of theory of asset appreciation capitalism that uh, Melinda Cooper, Lisa Atkins and Martin Koenigs and others have been developing, I think, really in response to the vision that we saw at the beginning of the 2010s, the kind of Occupy 1% uh, Piketty, rentier capitalism, kind of the vision that uh, what was so wrong uh, was the massive accumulation of wealth at the 1%, the plutocracy, a kind of return to a new gilded age. And I take it that the the asset economy critique is a way of pointing to the limits of thinking in those terms and showing how much, uh, how much deeper the problems of contemporary capitalism are by focusing on um, home ownership, in particular, and the ways in which home ownership is um, the main site of inequality now. And so we don't just have inequality um, between those who hold stocks and those who don't, but those who own their homes and those who don't. And that mm. cuts across the kind of generational inequality um, that we are now used to talking about in complicated ways by pointing to the in the 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 ways in which inheritance and transgenerational transfers of wealth just do so much to um, proper, uh, intensify inequality. Now, I can hear you're about to say maybe this is a kind of Rawlsian. Um, Rawlsians can do well <laughs> thinking about that. And I think they can. But I would say that I think we have to have an account um, to go with that, because in some sense, that's talking about the kind of middle layers of uh, society and middle mm. age and uh, you know thinking about ownership I think we also need to bring in at that point other kinds of theories that I think you get from uh, the Marxist tradition the black Marxist and Marxist feminist traditions um, to do with what's happening at the lower layers of the labor market and the ways in which um, you know we have seen the erosion of standard employment we have seen mm. Uh, the rise of insecure and precarious work that you know might, you might want to call it the feminization of work in many respects, but I think it's also the 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 intensification of immiseration. Um, and I think we need to put those together um, and think about. Um, and I think it, it's the lower layers question um, and the question about um, how uh, that. Um, generate certain kinds of problems of social and political citizenship that something like the Rawlsian tradition is much less good at thinking about and the kind of dynamism of the labor market um, and capitalism and uh, what is to be done. Yeah, no, I think that's um, super, super interesting and relevant. And I mean, as I said, coming from, from a social democratic tradition, I guess, I mean, the view of political change or political alliances within social democracy has always been the middle class. There needs to be an alliance between kind of the middle, the the Mittelstand, I guess, Georg, mm -hmm. no? The middle yes. class and the, 
and the and the working class um and of course what has happened in the last decades is that the middle the middle class they are now home owners and they are now kind of they don't really have an interest for so many reasons that's just one but i think that's a major reason actually and maybe under discussed as you as you say for not being want to i don't know not want, wanting to be part of uh, a, a a more redistributive political program and i wonder i wonder about if that's the reason for why progressive politics is kind of back in the us now and th that the only reason for that is that it, that the middle class has been so fucked uh, these last oh, we need uh, to beat 20 that. years we no, can maybe... we can't send that we can't send that we okay, no, no explicit... take that out no yeah. but i so i wonder if if, if, it, if for social change to happen that it needs to, needs to go really really bad for the for the middle class, and that's the only way <laughs> to form new alliances. I don't know. There's the revolutionary class. That's my theory the of change. change. Yeah, no, that, that's kind of change. the proletarianization of the professional managerial classes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes. So yes, I mean, I think that that kind of I, I think the precarity has been um, the rise in precarity of non-homeowning, um, renting middle classes has been mm. a really significant driver um in the will the willingness of uh, middle class constituencies to kind of embrace a kind of social democratic or democratic socialist politics um and i think that's particularly i mean we know it's generational so even though a lot of millennials will inherit um assets perhaps they haven't yet <laughs> and so um the generational lines are still as stark as i think they, you know, they may be less stark, but for now they're still really stark. I think, you know, I think this homeownership, I mean, this gets us onto kind of the pandemic because I think actually the politics of the home has been so important um, throughout the pandemic and actually the home as a workplace. I mean, normally we think about the home as a workplace, as a kind of site of gendered uh, social reproductive labor um it's often devalued uh but essential and disposable and unwaged labor um and the home often is kind of denigrated um e even though at the same time as held up as a kind of I ideology of domesticity and so on but it is nonetheless a kind of e e e like uh <laughs> parche the tradition of socialist feminism it is very rarely held up as a as a site of work, whereas now we've seen this transformation in which homes are workplaces, but coming out of the pandemic, it's quite likely that it's actually going to be affluent workers who hmm. have remain in their homes. I mean, in the US, in terms of thinking about tech workers, financial workers, they're the people who are going to stay remote working facilitated by technological transformations. And I think that that's going to, you know, in some sense that exacerbates and gives even deeper investments in a home ownership regime um, because actually homes are now going to be sites of work as well as sites of mm. leisure and social reproduction. Um, so I, I think I think we're kind of moving into this interesting moment in terms of the politics of the home and how that intersects with ownership and inequality. Before we enter that field, which I think is super relevant, I, I, I was I just wanted to point out I was following you a different route, I think, in your argument. So I thought you were sort of in this very unusual way critiquing sort of the way that Occupy Wall Street portrayed capitalism. And I was there sort of saying this is what democracy looks like. It was all about sort of evictions. So it was all about the house, the home. 
But then something happened and I thought that the use of saying that this is a nostalgic view of how, how to battle capitalist ills because actually what is happening is first of all the financialization of capitalism and now the asset manage, management capitalism which is interested interesting maybe also to think about in, in which we will get to maybe Biden's sort of plans or recovery or, or family plans of the reintroduction of the state as an actor as something that is up against uh, asset management firms who have much, much more capital actually, or, or equal sort of amounts of capital to, 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 to manage as a lot of states have. So they're really re relevant actors in this new era. Also then, which we might not come to in the context of, ca sort of climate change. So if, um, uh, just to stay on the super macro level for a bit before diving into maybe the, the not unconnected question of care and, and, and the home. What's uh, so? If, did, did I follow you in the wrong direction? So, if, were you saying so? If we're we shouldn't we shouldn't be too sort of not not nostalgic, but but we this is this is a classic critique of capitalism that might sort of lead us away from the really broader structural sort of fuck up that's going on. Oh, I see. Um... You mean by focusing on ownership, home ownership, rather than financialization? Not rather, or, but 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 I was, but I, was well. I, I had a sequentialization. I thought you, we were there in 2011, but then somehow actually things got really out of hand, and we might still look at the home as the place where we could battle capitalism, but maybe we should look some, somewhere else. And in some way, the reintroduction of the state as a progressive actor might be an answer to that. Going back actually to the Trente Glorieuse in some ways, sort of in a different way, so that progressive politics all of a sudden is re again framed in a in a way that 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 the state is the actor, which is, yeah, which we can discuss, which is not maybe not bad news, but it's surprising news in some way. Yeah, I, so I, I wouldn't want to say that you know the shift from the one percent away from the one percent critiques of capitalism is necessarily. Um, de-radicalizing or radical or necessarily radicalizing um but I, I i do agree that we're seeing a kind of shift at least at the moment in terms of thinking about what might happen with the biden administration towards the state of a u.s state seemingly doing something progressive for a change that we have in the last year and like the pandemic and the response to the pandemic of course has been huge in the u.s um, but I, I, um, I'm not sure about, I think the home is always, I mean, you know, to, we can go macro again, but just to go back to the home for a second, I think, you know, the home and the family is always part of these changing justifications and critiques of capitalism. And so actually thinking about the way where the place, the where the home fits in, um, to, uh, questions about state and corporate power is really important, um, I would say. But in that sense, uh, sort of to going back to go to the pandemic, would you say you, you say sort of there's so feminist socialism, which which says sort of homework is work, um, but this is not what happened in the pandemic. The pandemic said so there's capitalism, you just do it at home, and and and, and plus for your family care, you're not paid. So women suffer most, um, and poor women or Latinx women suffer sort of by far the most in the U.S. So it's 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 um, so the home has just been turned into a, like post postmodern factory for um, um, precarious precarious workers. It's not it's not an emancipatory place by far. No, um, and yes, uh, as 
as socialist feminists would say, it has long been um, the, 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 the home is the factory. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that in that sense, the pandemic has confirmed the insights of that tradition in many respects. I mean, I think the costs of social reproduction have been thrown back onto the home in ways that you know, were hard to anticipate before the pandemic. I mean, if you think about just, you know, kids, meals, air conditioning, the kind of daily costs that are usually borne by schools or by offices, employers have been borne by homes. You know, we have seen the, the domestic labor distribution of responsibilities. Women are doing more. I mean, you know, you could interpret the latest jobs numbers in the U.S. Um, as uh, indicator that women are still at home, not yet ready to rejoin the waged labor force. Um, but I, I do think that um, it's also been a bit kind of weirder than that. Sorry, Karen, did you want to? No, in? no, I'm so interested. Yeah, I have uh, so much to say, but you finish your thought, line of thought. Or you, do you want me to jump in? Yeah, no, I, I'm just thinking, I agree with, uh, it's so it's such an interesting point in time, because I think also what has happened during this last year is the, the politicization in a way of these, for the first time, people actually understand that these things are, like even <laughs> middle class women, I mean, going back to the middle class, they understand that their, their situation and um, uh, that it's political, that they don't have, you know, uh, help with, uh, with school, how you organize school, how you how you value school, how you value kids, how you... I mean, it's just became apparent to everyone that this is not working and that we need to find a structure for... Um, so we can continue working, basically, um, these, I mean, um, professional middle-class women. So it's just an interesting moment where things that weren't uh, considered political now has become um, uh, yeah politicized and and it's it's super interesting to, to me looking at this uh, biden family plan for example that they uh, are suggesting universal solutions it's not targeted to towards like lower income families it's targeted it's it's a very social democratic in that sense that it's general solutions, universal solutions, which are including the middle class and the uh, and the and the um, uh, managerial professional classes. So I wonder what that means. And uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. What do yeah. you think? No, what do you think, think will happen? I mean, I think we've seen a kind of coalescence of various different politics around the politics of care. Um, so we do have these kind of liberal quasi-social democratic efforts to regulate the care economy, which is both care, unwaged care at home, but also trying to finally do something about the state of the care economy in the US. And maybe I'll come back to the Biden plan itself. But I think, you know, the explosion of a uh, uh, concern around essential workers who are the workers who yeah. do the paid work of yeah. social reproduction outside the home and the willingness to see the connections between care work inside the home and essential workers beyond it I think no, is a really true. kind of crucial yeah. kind of moment and I mean we see it in the, the the movement for black lives and for police and prison abolition you know one of the slogans care not cops invest in community in care for the communities rather than uh, incarcerating and policing them. Um, but I think we've also seen care kind of through discourses around mutual aid. Um, I, but I, could, I this think... then, could this be the basis for a more radical uh, coalition then? The political, uh, I mean, in, in political terms. Right. And I do think so. Gabe Winant in his um, recent book, The Next Shift, 
has argued, and I agree, that um, bringing together providers and consumers of care is a really crucial constituency mm. um, for a kind of radical politics going forward. And I think, I mean, you know, the thing about um, care in the US is that um, healthcare and social assistance is one of the largest labor sectors in the country. It's, I think it's 40% of all jobs. And, um, you know, it's one of the largest sectors for generating growth in low wage jobs, too. And I think that the Biden plan, you know, I have I have a bunch of misgivings about some of the ways in uh, some of the implications of the Biden plan. But maybe we'll come back to that. But I do think mm. that, you know, that 200 billion for, you know, free universal preschool, I think it's 225 billion for childcare costs for low income families. These are huge uh, shifts that will make a big difference in people's lives. On the other hand, I don't think that it um, it goes nearly far enough. I mean, it, in some sense, the essential worker question is now becoming um, a really interesting way, I think, within liberal politics and liberal social democratic politics of um, advocating for citizenship in the US. So I think um, the Elizabeth Warren has been advocating for the Citizenship for Essential Workers Act, which is a, and campaigning to include it in the infrastructure package. And that would give citizenship for 5 million undocumented essential workers. So I think it's one of the things about the care essential work nexus is it's becoming a kind of way of doing both liberal and radical politics and in a very interesting way and a kind of touchstone there. I think that, you know, the, 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 the debates in the last few weeks about whether care work is infrastructure that I think was very important kind of coming out of the Biden infrastructure bill because so much of, you know, it, the, the care economy policies are, are split between the family plan and the jobs plan and the infrastructure bill. And the question about where care infrastructure is, you know, in many ways speaks, it, it, it's Great. It's great to frame care as infrastructure as this essential thing that, um, you know, all societies to reproduce themselves need. And but I do also slightly worry at the same time um, about even though I know you you just said that it, it's taking place in a kind of universalizing discourse, there is a way in which it's not about meeting universal needs. It's about productivity um, and perhaps that's all all that can be done at this particular conjuncture. Um, but there's something about putting it, put it, making care as an infrastructure that's necessary to the functioning of the economy rather than as the basis for, for example, a kind of, you know, Jeremy Corbyn's um, and Corbynism's advocacy for a universal care service like the universal health, um, you know, mm. uh, the, like the, sorry, national mm. care service like the National Health Service. I think that's a different language for advocating for care on social democratic grounds, which I think may be, I'm, I'm not sure about that, but may be preferable to the infrastructure move. Because we said we would stay with the Biden, we'll come to back to the Biden plan, maybe we just stay with the Biden plan and say this is the moment to discuss sort of Biden's radicalism or not, or... Um, is he a uh, radical? Is, is, he, is he a radical or... <laughs> Or whatever uh, happened? Uh, Who is no, yeah. I, I don't think I'm Biden's confused. radical. No, <laughs> no, no, no. But I think that you know that doesn't mean that the relief plan, you know, was not huge, um, and it doesn't. Um, 
you know, I think that there are a lot of missed opportunities here, but at the same time, it's a much bigger deal than many uh, anticipated it would be. So, you know, it's reason for optimism, I think, certainly, but I think there are lots of missed opportunities, but there always are with this with, with policy. I mean, even the Warren uh, bill I just mentioned, you know, doesn't... Um, uh, doesn't promote citizenship for incarcerated and minor and criminalized minorities, um, undocumented minorities. So there, there are there are gaps in the policies. But I mean, in Biden's policy, I mean, the big gap has been much talked about um, is its climate um, investment, which seems very inadequate given the scale of um, the <laughs> fighting climate change and the battle ahead. Uh, speaking about structural things that have changed since Rawls's time that I think require a different order mm. of, um, you know, uh, social transformation to address. But I think that there are also missed opportunities in the rhetoric as much as in the kind of underinvestment. So, for example, care work, essential work not being framed as a green job, I think is a real missed opportunity in terms of thinking about just transition and mm. how we go towards uh, low um, you know resource intensive uh, employment I think care work is a green job and I think mm. that kind of um, argument that like Alyssa Battistoni has been really making over the last few years I think it, it, it was a missed opportunity if we are going to go as far as framing care work as infrastructure to not go in that direction too. Have you been thinking about, so I'm just looking at the last decade and the rise of um, right-wing populism or nativist uh, populism or whatever you want to call it and how, and then like the struggle from social democracy and conservative movements to kind of win back the the voters they lost <laughs> to these right-wing populist parties, which are predominantly uh, like what men, um, working class men and middle class men, working middle class. Uh, and so there's been this uh, neurosis almost around these constituencies and they've been so much in the center of, at the center of attention of uh, politics lately uh, with the coal workers in West Virginia and what have you. And and I wonder, I wonder about the pandemic coming out of the uh, pandemic and, and this focus on, on care workers, as you say, Katrina, if this like the gem how politics is gendered if that will um if that will just become more pronounced maybe uh between like uh more nostalgic or backwards looking or and more progressive i don't know uh, options in politics or and how i mean how this whole thing will play it out, play out uh it's 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 interesting yeah, I mean, think? that's the big question. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think with care work, of course, care work is gendered. It is racialized. I mean, uh, in the US, men of color are three times more likely than white men to work in the care sector. Mm. Um, and so, you know, we do have a kind of problems about white masculinity and mm. uptake of uh, if if essential workers, care workers are the kind of working class uh, work of the future um, how can it be sold um, I don't think I have many answers on that but I do think that's one of the reasons why the the, the consumers givers of care kind of uh, nexus as a basis for a constituency is um, promising rather than just going through uh, care workers as in also being you know those those men may uh, well be consumers of care mm. 
Um, so, but in terms, and they just of, realized. Yeah, they've just realized. I mean, I think, the I think they just realized. Hopefully, or maybe. I mean, potentially. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think well, it, it's interesting to see what what's going to come out of the pandemic in that sense, in terms of thinking about um, you know uh, masculinity and reaction and. Um, uh, needs and bodies in the sense of sorry there's lots of lots of big <laughs> fuzzy <laughs> words there but in the sense of I mean I do think we've seen a you know reassertion of um, a kind of reactionary masculinity in terms of kind of anti-mask wearing various kinds of um, skeptical anti also the Swedes though we're also right. you, you are it's true I'm not sure what to say about social democracy <laughs> outside my area of expertise <laughs> but let's but, um, not let's not go into that no but I do but I, I take your point that, that we have there are difficulties when um, but one of the things I would say for that is a, a, a lot of that nostalgia is not necessarily nostalgia for the work itself and the jobs itself it's a nostalgia for good jobs in the set of jobs that have pensions that have security it's a nostalgia for standard employment and it's nostalgia for the growth conditions hmm. of the post-war i don't think i have any answers about how um or particular or convincing answers i mean i think this is the problem we all have to think about about how um to go beyond that but i i don't think the um I think we want, would want to resist thinking that uh, the constituencies who are, um, you know, uh, I, wouldn't, I don't want to say victims, but are subjects of relative deprivation. Um, you know, I, I don't think that we necessarily want to convince them on the terms set by the right and the ways in which the right diagnoses the problem, I think we would want to resist. I think that the, you know, one of the things, for example, in the UK, a lot of the um, constituencies who are described as, you know, red wall working class constituencies, a lot of them are working class constituencies, but a lot of them also, if we're thinking about new uh, uh, lines of inequality, they are homeowners, they are people yeah. with pensions, and yeah. they are living in, um, you know, the thing that holds them together with uh, the people on the other side of those inequalities are um, a concern with the public realm. And I think those kinds of um, investments in public goods, I think, end up having to be the best way forward rather than an appeal to kind of um, uh, rather than acceptance of, uh, of uh, the claims of nostalgia. So I think, I mean, I think actually the pandemic also um, has intensified the disappearance of the public realm and perhaps also has made people feel quite acutely the loss of public space and mm. the loss of non-privatized public space. And perhaps um, that's something to build from too, um, thinking about recommitments to the public out um, coming out of the pandemic. But no, I mean, I think these are the questions and I don't have any easy answers. Maybe so if we can use the last 10 or 15 minutes to, to build on something that you say you don't have the answer to, but, but to try to be constructive, um, looking, looking, as you say, beyond the nostalgia for growth, which is something that might be um, destroying the planet. So that is a nostalgia that we should maybe should get rid of or sort of deeply question and for good jobs as well. 
which might be lost over time. So if it's it's a sort of a hypothetical, but not so hypothetical assessment, I guess that sort of work might massively change. There's a talk of end of work, and you explore some of these themes in, in the, the excellent uh, edition of Descent that you curated together with Moira Weigel. Um, and, and I would be interested in how that connects to both the question of equality, so if that, that, that is a term from redistributive um, um, sort of logic based on work or something that you need to sort of can you, you get to, and to, um, to redistribute. So, so how is that connected to the end of work if there is no real redistribution possible? Is the need, as you say, so that's an interesting term. So care is need. So is need a different way of saying, so if, is that replacing redistribution in some way? Are these shapes of like a capitalism of care in some, in some way so that, that connects all of that? So if the end of work, so the, the rise of technology, the... Aging, you have a whole part of, you have a whole pro you have a whole manifesto here. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I, can, I can lay it all out. <laughs> okay, so uh, hard to give an answer to all that. But what I would say, I, I would say rather than care or need or work, we might say something else from the feminist tradition, which is time. Um, and maybe I'll cut, park that and then come back to it. I mean, thinking about the end of work, first thing I would want to say is I am deeply skeptical about, you know, discourses about the end of work and the idea that automation will, uh, you know, eliminate bad jobs. I think it just redistributes and the bad jobs. And I think one of the things that we've certainly seen in the pandemic is the way in which technologies, on the one hand, um, have been used to um, facilitate people working from home um, and to basically keep everything running and keep capitalism running in ways that I think at first we didn't think was going to be possible. And it really, I mean, one of the, I think the big shocks in many ways is the fact that everything kept going, even when the schools shut, everything kept going. People kept doing their jobs. And that is partly facilitated by the technology. And I think that we should be kind of worried about the intensification of work discipline through technological means. But on the, the, the other side, I think, um, you know, digital technologies, allowed for the continuation of extremely high-risk embodied labor and so the continuation of uh, the precarious service sector delivery work and so on but you know as amazon continually profited so uh, digital technologies allowed um, embodied workers not just automated or not automated workers to do that kind of risky work I mean work that has always been risky but was made much more uh, risky during COVID so I think that yeah I would want to first of all say like you know question mark over the end of work I think that we should want less work <laughs> And I think, you know, we should want better work and better conditions for work, but we should also want less work. And this is where I do think the politics of time is really important. And I know I've mentioned Corbynism already, but the four day week policies, um, I think that those kinds of um, ways of advocating for leisure um, and not confusing leisure with care work, because I think there's a way in which yeah. sometimes we say, like, <laughs> you know, like, oh, more time, i.e. more time for family. And that is not what I mean. And this is gets me back to some of the kind of difficulties with, for instance, the family plan, plan Biden's family plan and the reification and consolidation and entrenchment of the family. 
um, within American politics. I mean, it's always been there and the heteronormative, um, often raced and classed family, we should also say. But I think that fighting for uh, time uh, for what we will, I think is a really important um you know, way forward to bring together your all the things that you 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 put to me there. I think a four day four day week, I think, is vital as well as better um, you know, uh, better conditions for care workers as well as um, you know, national care services, universal care services. I think these are the kinds of politics um, that we should be advocating and defending and fighting for. And I think the point is, a lot of movements are and. Um, I think that these are the kinds of things about investment in care, investment in communities, um, about politics of time that we are seeing from many of the movements that have picked up um, over the last 10 years and uh, during the pandemic too. And I, I think that that's where we should be going and putting energies. I wonder if that's uh, the moment. I mean, I mean, we talked about care and that the that it's become kind of politicized during the pandemic. But maybe it's also a good time, uh, timing-wise, to talk about um, time as an asset or something that's valuable because it has also. I mean, what has happened also with the pandemic and people working from home is, of course, that I mean time has become it's become much more unclear what is what is it leisure time is it work time it's all like one for people than working from home uh, which is not a luxury afforded to everyone but maybe then i don't know maybe in my thinking people have also spent the last year thinking a lot about time and how they spend their time and what's maybe valuable so it's kind of a moment of I don't know. I think for a lot of people this last year, thinking about value, time, work, uh, life, work balance. So maybe it's just a moment to to try to politicize um, concepts that have not been thought about in political terms at all before, because it's like we've, I don't know, seen something. Uh, well, plus time is such an important factor in climate change, of course. So you no, no, that's true. That's true. The, yeah, no, sort of, of course. The, the that's future a good point. into the present. So if it's yeah. It's, it's the yeah, it's I the think, battlefield actually of of you could yeah. say in a lot of ways of for politics. Or, yeah, I mean, I think particularly you know the I take the the way I was talking about time just now from the autonomous Marxist feminist tradition really, and the 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 vision of reclaiming time as a kind of refusal of work, and hmm. I think that that is something that has a lot of purchase for people right now. Um, yeah. I think, you know, we've seen the double shift like synchronized, you know, time has been insane over the last year. Yeah. Um, and I think that, um, you know, and this obviously, you know, it, it's affected everyone, but it, as all these things always have, has disproportionately affected um, poorer communities. And I think, but because it's affected everyone in some sense or affected mm. most people, not mm. everyone. And of course, we're talking about the US and Europe really right now um, only maybe. But I think that there is this sense in which um, fighting for more control of time is um, something that's really important, particularly actually if we're thinking about the um, the transformation of work and I know I just resisted the end of work but I do think that you know we are seeing a kind of increasing um, you know informal employment is rapidly becoming 
the norm. I think you know the 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 ways in which in informal economies of the you know are informal work is the majority of many of economies of the global south. I think that is you know increasingly going to be the case in Europe and the U.S. I think that part-time multi-job work i mean this gets back to care work as well i mean one of the things one of the ways in which the pandemic spread so quickly through nursing homes and care homes is a lot of people who work there the essential workers who work there work in multiple homes because Mm. they need multiple jobs uh, to get a living wage and i think when we're thinking about the ways in which care and work and workload and um time for leisure intersect. I mean, it's very clear that the overwork um, is one of the features of precarious service and care economies. And so actually finding ways, and as I think I've said, I'm not so good on the solutions, but finding, you know, if we could find policies to really address this, you know, um, as well, you know, that would be great. I personally think that these things won't be addressed until there are large enough um, constituencies um, and organized working class power willing to, you know, uh, uh, an organized working class asserting their power um, to do that. But I think that we have increasingly actually seen um, over the last year um, movements in that direction. I mean, we've had so many wildcat strikes. We've had so many, um, you know, essential workers, uh, hospital education and so on. Um, teachers protesting and I wonder whether that those movements are and I think the movement for black lives and the uprising and some riots in the US last summer can be thought of as kind of movements of essential workers too in fact as well as movements against the repressive state apparatus but I think these things can be usefully seen together um, as promises of the new politics that's my optimistic take on this note, um, I think there was rich material um, to continue our conversation. Um, hopefully in the future, uh, we'll s- continue looking for answers. Um, and I think... Uh, we can't promise to deliver that. We though. can't no. promise, but uh, it's, a call to, it's a call to action um, So for the audience. As well, uh, Katrina, it was delightful to talk to you. Thank you for your time. And uh, yeah, talk to you soon. Um, once uh, we're me. all out of this mess uh, for good and um, and then really can start digging in and work on a better future which yeah, is um, we, so something. we hope i hope we are out <laughs> so of this mess sooner rather than later for the sake of the planet so thank you both for having me it was really fun to talk thank you